Well, if you don't know, religion is a pretty dirty word these days. Religion in our culture is typically associated with things like bigotry, hypocrisy, you know, self-righteousness, close-mindedness. A religious person is typically viewed by society as being someone who is unenlightened and possibly even anti-science. If you yourself have reservations about religion, and I know that some of you, I want to grant you, first of all, that religion is, in many senses, both the cause and the symptom of a lot of things that are wrong in our culture and society. But here's the question I want to lead off with. What if your religion actually made you more fully human and not less? What if instead of becoming a shell of the person that God made you to be, filled with all his fullness, as we've just been studying in Colossians chapter 2, what if religion made you come alive with love and truth and grace and hope and peace that you not only experience for yourself, but with righteousness and justice and mercy that you are pouring out and investing in for the sake of others? What if religion could do that? Let's come to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And unfortunately, our first word that we're reading this morning in verse 16 is the word therefore. And I say it's unfortunate because the word therefore points back to something before it. And we don't have time to re-preach the last two week sermons. But what we're talking about jumping into the middle of a context is the Apostle Paul, a man called by Jesus Christ himself, is telling a church, basically, if you are following after and giving your heart and mind over to any kind of human or worldly philosophy, it doesn't matter what it is doesn't matter if it's conservative or liberal or you think it's just right down the middle balanced. He says, in the end, you will be left empty and enslaved. But if you're following after Jesus Christ himself in faith, in hope, in trust, you get freedom, you get forgiveness, you get fulfillment, satisfaction for life and for eternal life. So we're jumping in there. And he's saying, if this is true, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's talking about religion. He's kind of moved from philosophy in general to some more theologically based philosophies. 
known as religion. And I want us to see three points here this morning. The gravitational pull of religion, the deadly ironies of religion, and then the life-giving alternative to religion. So gravitational pull, what do I mean? Well, if you jump off of something, no matter what you tell yourself in your mind, you know that you are going down, right? There's a gravitational pull literally in this world that it brings you back to something. Let me talk to you for a moment about this gravitational pull that I see that religion kind of has over all of our hearts just as humanity. First of all, you notice that Paul leads off this section talking about food and drink or different types of festivals or new moons or Sabbath. So what he's talking about here is the Old Testament, specifically the Torah. The first five books of Moses that contain the law that governed the the civil and the ceremonial side of Jewish life. And he's pointing back to these things and he's saying, you know, we could talk about these forever and the number of things that they prescribe and the number of things that they forbid and annual and monthly and even weekly remembrances that, that help you remember to be a religious practitioner. But I want to just generalize from that and point out that every religion... Every religion forbids certain things, and every religion demands certain other things. And you see that later in the text. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Don't listen to that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Every religion has some kind of regulations like this. And this is the first of those gravitational pulls. If you're taking notes along with me, this text is pointing out that many people are drawn to rules and routines, Rules and routines. Humans like structure over chaos. We like boundaries. We like guardrails. You know, as we have a 16-year-old for the first time in our house as of this week, and we were talking last week as we were going up to Grand Lake and back, and we're going over Berthed Pass, which many of you have done, you know, tight turns and steep drop-offs. And she mentioned to me, she's like, I'm glad every time we drive this that there are guardrails there. You know, and it's a little bit of an insult to me, her father, who does most of the driving, because I've never hit a guardrail. So what difference does it make that the guardrail's there? I mean, a little, another story, my parents were visiting a number of years ago. They're Flatlanders. They're from South Carolina. And I took them up to Mount Evans, the top of Mount Evans, like the the one of two 14ers that you can drive to the top of. And I thought they were just going to get up there on top of the world and see for, you know, 80 miles and just be thrilled. And both of them were angry. Both of them were upset at me. You know, my mom's like, Matthew Allen, like, why did you bring us up here? You know, why? Because there are no guardrails if you've driven that road. And you're driving a narrow mountain road that the edges are kind of crumbling off of, and there are no guardrails. We like guardrails. We like boundaries. We like the way things set structure and routine for us. Uh, my, My point is, what is the purpose of these rules? You know, the purpose of the guardrail is not to hit it. The, the purpose is to remind you, hey, there's, there's an edge here, and I will catch you if you go that way. But really what Paul is pointing out is not that there's anything wrong with structure per se. I mean, you look at nature, and God has ordered nature in an extraordinary way. Like the Fibonacci sequence that you see in everything, this, this mathematical sequence that's patterned in seashells and all kinds of different things in science, in the ordered world. That didn't just happen. God did that. But Paul's pointing out, where's your focus? Where's your emphasis? To use a different analogy, 
if you're one of those parents, like I used to be, that slapped training wheels on your kid's bicycle, what's the purpose of the training wheels? So you're not sitting there celebrating the training wheels, like, oh, training wheels are awesome, and then we're going to upgrade to a bigger set of training wheels, and then a bigger set, and a bigger set. We'll just always keep them on additional bikes that we buy for our kids. No, that the purpose of the training wheels is actually that you learn to ride safely without them. But so often we see religion treating rules and boundaries very differently. It's almost as if they take on a virtuosity of their own. And you are a holy, you are a righteous, you're a special, you've arrived kind of person if you multiply rules and regulations and routines and boundaries. Many are drawn to that. Kind of flipping the script, next we see Paul cautioning those who insist on, or it's literally those who delight in the worship of angels, he says, going on in detail about visions. And if I were to generalize that, as some are kind of drawn magnetically to rules and routines and regulations, other people are drawn to ecstatic experiences, is what he's talking about here. And the worship of angels could either refer to, like, the, the angels are the object of our worship, like, oh, we worship you, angels, or just as likely as that the, the angels are the subject, that the angels are worshiping God and it's a desire to come alongside the angels and have this ecstatic experience of worshiping alongside angels. And, you know, this kind of goes on here. He says at the same time, they're, they're, they're going on and on about visions and maybe you know some of these people that are always claiming a special revelation. Like the revealed word of God is never enough. They're always having a vision. They're always having a word. They're always saying something different or additional to what the book says. You know, and, and some are just magnetically drawn to that. That they want to be transported beyond, you know, mere human worship that you other plebes are doing into some ecstasy, some supernatural, amazing thing. And by the way, like as we worship God together, we are drawn into something mystical and supernatural. It's not like these are just words on the page, but as I prayed earlier, the Spirit lives in us, and the Spirit lives and breathes through these words. There is something supernatural there, but he's cautioning against those who just are going from one ecstatic experience to another, to another, to another, and the gospel is just never enough. Thirdly here, and a common feature of both of these groups, is that many are just simply drawn to self. You know, and it's humble and self-effacing as so many religions appear to be on the surface. They're still actually all about self. Because you're, you're supposed to be a self-made person. Or it's a self-willed sort of thing. Or self-righteousness or self-justification. One commentator says, if we set as our goals self-discipline, self-awareness, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-actualization, or self-help, we usually wind up with a worship of self. So ironically, what he's saying is in the pursuit of God, it's so easy to shift focus and your obsession is with self. How am I doing? How do I look? How am I coming across right now? Um, You know, and, and how do I unlock the next level and get to the next thing for me? How do I get these additional gifts? And again, very easily we can shift from it's, it's about God. It is about your glory to It's kind of about me. And that's what all of these different things, whether you're a very, very uh, religious rule follower kind of person, you like the routines, you like the structure, or whether you're like, no, I like to mix it up. 
constant ecstatic stuff that I never know what's gonna happen next. And then I can go tell all my friends this vision or this dream I had. He's just saying, hey, caution, don't make your religion about you with yourself at the center. This, this thing exists for me, okay? Going on here, that's the gravitational pull. What about the deadly ironies? And that's really what a chunk of this is about, that he's warning us that it looks one way and then you get in and you are trapped because it's actually something else altogether. So the first of these ironies is that the root so often contradicts the fruit. Let me just show you a couple examples of this in the text. The word asceticism is used a couple times here. I actually think it's not a great translation. The Greek word is just simply the word humility. And humility is a key feature of many religions. And it's a great, it's a great character um, trait. It is a great character trait. The gentleness, the lowliness. I mean, we think of a humble person as not going around like, Oh, shucks, you know, I can't do anything good. I just, I stink at everything. Because you realize that's a false humility, which is worse than just pride. But, but there is a genuine humility of not thinking less of self, but just thinking of self less. Just constantly thinking of others and taking the low place to serve other people. That's a good trait in and of itself. But look at verse 18. Because what's the very next line after Paul mentions humility? He says, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason. And puffed up is the translation of one word that literally means to be inflated with arrogance. And we still have a, an expression for this. We say, that person's full of hot air. What do we mean? There's, there's a bluster to them. There's a boastfulness that they're arrogant. And they're just always venting stuff that shows you the pride of their heart. And this is an incredible thing. Paul's saying you can't get true humility from a proud root. If you start with pride in your heart and you are going to put on a show, and by the way, isn't that a lot, of, a lot of religion? Instead of just being humble, which is beautiful, which is Christ-like, so much of religion is about convincing you that I am humble. And I mean, you, you see this subtle, ironic, dangerous difference between just being a humble person and living to make sure that, hey, is the way I'm carrying myself right now, is the way I'm talking, like, are other people going to think that I'm humble? And Paul's saying you can't get true humility from a proud root. By the way, there's so much of this in religion, right? You ever, you ever hear someone say, like, you know, as a boastful thing, like, I've, I've never had a drop of alcohol. I've... You know, never has that stuff like touched these virgin lips. And, and if you haven't had alcohol, great. But do you see how easy it is to turn something that may in and of itself be good or at least be open to a conversation and to make it a matter of boastfulness and pride? Let's be careful there. Okay, here's another example. Verse 23, Paul talks about those who promote and he uses this phrase, severity to the body. And that's actually a great place for the word asceticism there because um, that's what the word means. It's, it's an unsparing treatment of the body. And some of you may know people like this, that there's, there's a harsh kind of self-control. You know, maybe not in the way that the monks used to do it, like crawling around on their knees, um, you know, chastity belts, or like I'm gonna, I'm gonna inflict pain on myself anytime I have a, a pleasurable thought or desire for a pleasurable action. I'm gonna punish that. 
So he's talking about stuff that's that extreme, but there's, there's stuff short of that, certainly. Just a, just a self, constant self-denial for the sake of self-denial. Um, by the way, I would, I would add that there are a number of tragic non-religious examples of this. Um, some that we deal with in counseling, like anorexia, bulimia, cutting, branding, even attempted suicide. Now, this, this is a very complex world of self-harm. But sometimes, at least, sometimes, that isn't as self-denying or self-hating as it looks. It's really a, a different, bizarre kind of self-indulgence or obsession. You know, when we had homeless here in the building, they pulled out our outlets. And I thought, man, that's weird. I guess they're trying to, like, hardwire their phones or something. And found out later, like, no, they're pulling out the bare wires so they can grab the bare wires and feel something. Because they don't have access to drugs inside our building. They just want to feel, okay? Well, that kind of self-harm or bizarre, like, self-denial in a non-religious way can be actually a type of indulgence or obsession or addiction. So it's an amazing irony that Paul's talking about here that the self-indulgent person and the self-denying person at the root may end up being more similar than they are different. And here's kind of your second point. Paul's saying if, if, if the root and fruit don't match up, he's saying you can't get true spirituality from a fleshly root. And if all of your self-denial is still coming from, verse 18, a sensuous, that is a fleshly heart and mind, then it's all for nothing. Okay, so let me just summarize those two things. What fruit grows out of the root? You know, 100% of the time, unless you've grafted something in, the fruit that you're getting on your life is the fruit that's connected organically to the root. And if we want to make changes in our life, Paul's saying the answer is not more rules, more routines, more regulation for myself, let alone for others. And it's not just the seeking of like random ecstatic experiences. He's saying you've, you've got to change the root if you want to change the fruit. Okay, going on here. That's the, that's the first irony is that the fruit and the root don't match. The second irony is that religion actually underneath it all is powerless, it has no ability to do what it is promising you it wants to do, okay? By the way, what's, what's the goal of religion? According to verses 16 through 18, it is to restrain your worst impulses and be some sort of gateway into more ecstatic, more, more spiritual, more transcendent experiences. But Paul says it, it ultimately accomplishes neither, I give you kind of two graphic analogies. Religion is like trying to restrain a dragon with dental floss. Religion is like trying to leave this world strapped to a bottle rocket. And you can work and work and work to wrap that dental floss around the dragon. And you may even succeed at some point in restraining some part of that dragon. The problem is you don't merely need to restrain the dragon, which is your heart. You need to transform the dragon. And dental floss does not transform the dragon's heart. Okay, the bottle rocket does not lead you to transcendent experiences. It just burns you and it hurts. Verse 23. 
I say religion is powerless. Paul says religion is powerless. Notice he says these rules and regulations is what he's referring to. He says they, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. One writer says, obedience to rigorous rules may earn one a reputation for holiness, but it is ultimately ineffective with dealing, in dealing with human sinfulness. Again, you see the difference. Like the Pharisees going around, everybody looked at them like, oh, what holy men. And you're like, but why do these holy men keep walking past all the needs of everyone else? That doesn't make them very holy or very loving or very godlike, right? But they weren't worried about that. They didn't want hearts that looked like God. They wanted the reputation of being awesome people. But again, we don't want to just restrain the dragon. We want to transform. And Paul is saying here, religion has no ability to do that. And then thirdly, the real ultimate irony here is not just that the fruit and root will never match, not just that it's powerless, but he actually says here, thirdly, religion ultimately brings you back into bondage. Okay, and these are his warnings in verses 16 and 18, and even going back to last week's warning in verse 8, look at these three. Verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Why is he having to say, hey, warning, don't let people do this to you? Well, he has to say that because people were doing that to them. And isn't that ironic? Hey, come, come worship like us. Come, come do our religion. We can slap the handcuffs on you faster than anybody. We can judge you faster than anybody. We can disqualify you. And Paul's saying, listen, church, if you want to be truly free, forgiven and free and fulfilled, you can never get there through any kind of religion that is the creation of human beings. Because forget the pretense, forget the promises. At the end of the day, they're going to slap handcuffs on you, judge you, and say, you're disqualified. And by the way, that last word, disqualified, he takes it out of the, the sports world. It's a, it's a word that was used in sports back in the day. And I know I'm speaking anachronistically because there wasn't baseball in Paul's day, but it was the word for an umpire. And I picture a home plate umpire and you are working, working, working to get yourself on base and get, get bunted over to second. And then there's a single and you're, you're going for it and you're going around and you're sliding into home plate. And then you look up at the umpire and the umpire says, you're out. You're disqualified. And Paul's point here is that with religion, it's not like sometimes you're safe and sometimes you're out. It's that every single time you will be called out. You will be disqualified by the very stuff you're trying to qualify yourself by, okay? Now, I don't think most people pursue religion for the sake of the rules. Like, I just love having all the rules. Uh, it's like, you, you don't love having all the guardrails. You just like the fact that they're there. You don't... You don't love the training wheels, you just, as a parent, you appreciate the fact that your kid's not falling over every time and skinning their knees, okay? But I think it's fair to say that we are using religion as a means to an end, that we have goals, that we have desires, we want to achieve, you know, maybe it's ultimate meaning or purpose, just feel like my, my, I'm living for something bigger than me. Or maybe it's reconciliation with God. And you're like, I, this is the path I chose to feel like I have a right relationship with God or that I've somehow earned eternal life. I know there's something beyond this. I want to get there. Here's the punchline. Paul's saying you can't get there like this. No matter, again, what your human religion is, he's saying you can't get there from here. 
not this way. And by the way, let me go back to the training wheels. I found this out from some friends sitting back over here years ago, and it's changed our parenting. Training wheels are terrible, okay? And I, don't, like, I, didn't, I didn't drive by your open garages this week to check who has them, okay? So this is, if you're like, man, we just put Johnny's training wheels on yesterday because it was such a nice day, okay? I don't care, that's fine. Training wheels are terrible. Do you know why? Because not, not only are you never gonna not ride without them, like, if, you want, if that's your goal, training wheels are, are literally training your child to do the opposite of what they need to do to actually ride, Okay, balance doesn't come so much from just this, the, the energy of moving forward. It comes from turning. Some of you go do this this afternoon. You're like, you have to turn into the fall instead of away from it. Training wheels actually are training you to do the opposite of what would create balance. So here's, here's a free parenting tip in the middle of this. Buy your kids a Strider bike. And I don't even know where ours is because like everybody in the church has borrowed ours and it's like made its way around the neighborhood. But a Strider bike, they have, to, you know, they have to actually balance, but they have their legs down there and they can run and they love it and they learn to balance. They pick up their feet and they're off and going. The Strider bike is more like the gospel, which like even in giving you some tools to do the ultimate thing, it's training you on the path that is the very thing that you need to continue to do in a more proficient way to actually just enjoy riding the bike. Okay, you're welcome. So that was, that was free. Um, training wheels are religion. Because you'll never get where you want to be with them and they're actually doing the opposite of what they've promised to do. Now let's go to this quickly in closing. The life-giving alternative to religion and by the way, you'll notice I'm using the term religion as human man-made religion. I'm not playing games with you. There is a sense in which Christianity is a religion, okay? Because there's structure. There's, there's principles to live by. You, you still have the Ten Commandments. There are still routines. There's a Christian calendar to our year that helps us celebrate certain things. I'm not trying to play games with you. There's, a, there's a many senses in which Christianity is a religion, but it is not a man-made religion. We believe as Christians that it was given to us by God and that we're walking in the model that can create health for us. Okay, so the life-giving alternative to human religion, let me put it like that. And I love the imagery of verse 17 where he's like, forget the false man-made stuff, let alone the regulations of the Old Testament, which is incredible because that came from God. He's like, but, but that was not the thing. The regulations of the Old Testament that set the civil and the ceremonial code for the Jewish people, that would be like driving birthed past, staring at the guardrails, making sure that you scrape every single one. And he's like, that's not the point. The point is to get you to Jesus, to get you to your destination safely, Okay. But here's, here's the, uh, the metaphor. Here's the picture. He says, all of those other things were merely a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We grew up playing shadow tag. We always had lunch, then we'd be out on the playground for a few minutes. And the great thing about shadow tag, you can, you can play shadow tag now with COVID. You don't have to touch the person. So with shadow tag, you're just running around trying to stomp on the other people's shadows. And if you touch their shadow or step on their shadow, they're either disqualified or they're frozen or whatever, okay? Now, we know with shadow tag that when you stomp on someone's shadow, they're not like, oh, what would you do that for? Um, because there is an association between you and your shadow, but they are not the same thing. 
an association, but the real substance belongs to your physical body, okay? That's the analogy that Paul's using here. And he's saying Christ is the life-giving substance of which the best religion is merely a shadow. So three, three sub-points in closing. Number one, in Christ, the flesh has no controlling power over you. And I want you to notice whether you tend toward legalistic stuff, like the rules and regulations, you want them for yourself and you want them for other people, or whether you're on this opposite side and you're, you're kind of a little bit of a rebel at heart. You're like, I love Jesus, but man, really the rules, like, why can't we be more libertine? And Paul's like, you know, whichever side of that spectrum you fall on, or again, whether you think you fall right in the middle, at the end of the day, you're just controlled by your own flesh. You are not free from your own flesh. But notice he says here, if you're dead in Christ, you're dead to this old person, you're dead to this old nature, then it has no ultimate power or authority over you. You are truly free because you've, as we looked at last week, you've died with Christ, you've been buried with him, you've been risen, and he's conquered the power of that flesh where you can choose to serve your flesh, but you don't have to. It doesn't dominate you in the same way. So in Christ, the flesh has no controlling power. Secondly, in Christ, the law has no condemning power. And this is the implication of Paul's repeated warnings here. I mean, you know, when he says, like, let no one pass judgment on you. Well, you, you could be like, Paul, I, have you seen the church I grew up in, Paul? Like, let no one pass judgment on you. You know, you, you could play this game. His point is not that you can literally stop other people from passing judgment on you or them saying, hey, you're disqualified. His point is, you don't have to listen to them. You don't have to give any credence to their words when they say, you have to do this extra biblical stuff to have a right relationship with God. You can say, no, I don't. Well, you're disqualified. Okay, I'm disqualified from your religion, but, but Jesus is still very much in love with me and he likes me and he's accepted me by what he's done. Okay, so he's saying the law has no condemning power. Lastly, in Christ, this is so important, in Christ you're transformed, you're filled, you're renewed from the inside out. This is such a contrast to any religion. The only tool that any religion has is to try to change you from the outside in. If we give you these rules, if you don't do this, and listen, there's some bad stuff that religion is trying to keep you from, like hurtful stuff. There's some good stuff that religion is trying to get you to do. But at the end of the day, again, it's like trying to restrain a dragon with dental floss, let alone transform. You can't transform your heart by simply being bound on the outside by rules and regulations or by having certain kinds of ecstatic experiences. So then back to this one phrase in closing, he refers to Christ as the head of the body, nourishing you, uniting you, transforming you from the inside out. And now he's using two words that are basically ligaments and tendons. And he's like, church, as, as you bind yourselves to Christ in faith, but also you're united together. You know, and I, I let off this way with partnerships, but as, as big capital C church, we're, we're all united together. And as, as each one of us receives from the inside out the strength and the love and the renewal of Christ, and we pour that back into relationships where we're bound together, that's what makes for healthy church relationships. It's not rules. 
Rules and regulations, religion, do not make for healthy churches. I know some of the some of the unhealthiest churches are the ones that have multiplied and multiplied and multiplied rules for everybody. And then you got a group of people that are just pretending like they keep the rules when they know deep down they're like the Pharisees. It's like they break all the rules, but in public they know how to make it look good. So here's Jesus' invitation. Here's Paul's invitation. He's basically saying, church, come out of the shadows and embrace the substance. You know, if the shadows are the guilt and the shame that religion, that rules heap on top of you, as Richard prayed earlier together with all of us, we believe that that is forgiven in Christ. We don't live under the shadow of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation anymore. We just don't, okay? But we also don't have to live in the shadows of some kind of externalism, of trying to convince other people, yeah, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing great, thanks. And then you maybe go to the privacy of your car or your house or your room and you fall apart because you know you're not doing well. But you can't be real with people and religion doesn't give you the tools to be real with people whereas Jesus does. So come out of those shadows Step into the substance, which is Jesus. Believe this good news. Fight like crazy in the strength that God has given you. Fight your own tendency to find your identity in either the rules or in the just constant visions and dreams and ecstatic experiences. And find your identity in the person and work of Jesus. And let's remember as even Christianity is a religion with some helpful tools just remember to look at those like the training wheels that you're, you're sitting there constantly reminding myself, what is the point? The point is that I can ride freely and safely and have a blast just riding and riding and riding and feeling the love and acceptance of God as I ride. It's not about those wheels. It's about the journey. It's about the destination. It's about who's with you on that journey and in that destination, Jesus. So, Embrace the substance of Jesus.